together through all of the Bible. We feel that God didn't just give the book of Psalms or the Gospels or the book of Romans, but he gave the whole Bible that we might spend a lifetime, if need be, to understand it and be instructed by it. We recommend that you have formulated your own plan of going through the Bible. We have given you different formulas to do that, either consecutively or, well, there's different ways to go through it, but on your own going through the Bible. One of the best ways we found is that uh, if you really want to get to know it in depth is that you read the chapters we're going through Sunday night. You know, you could read, uh, say, after we cover 7 and 8, you could read 9 and 10 every day this week, once a day. By the end of the week, you will know those chapters so well. You'll be immersed in them. You'll see how they fit. You'll notice certain words that are repeated and certain themes that emerge. And you'll really get to know it. If you were to read Exodus uh, with us and just read it every day and make that a portion of your study, you come together and take notes on it, you'll be amazed at what the Spirit of God will do with that. Of course, you can uh, read the Bible through. You can read different sections of the Bible through. I like to do all of that. I get to spend a lot of time in the Word, and I like to go through. Uh, right now I'm in Ezekiel in the Old Testament in my personal study and Timothy in my personal study in the morning, as well as the chapters that we go through Sunday night, Sunday morning, and Thursday night. So there's a lot of ways you can do it. Now what we're doing, I wanted to show you this prototype. I showed it this morning, but we have more notes and outlines for Exodus. We have an outline of the entire book. We have a chart of the route that was taken by the Exodus. Uh, key verses, key thoughts, key people, all of that is for free as a handout in the back. And you'll notice that the paper that is passed out has three holes in it because it's intended to fit in this thing, which will be out probably next week. Um, the picture has gone to the printer, and it simply says, uh, through the Bible, verse by verse, and then a scripture, Oh, how I love your law, it is my meditation all the day. And what this will have in it is, will come with tabs of all the different books of the Bible. It will come with uh, an outline of the book of Exodus, an outline of the book of uh, Genesis and Matthew. That's what we've covered so far. And you can stick your extraneous notes in there. Uh, you can also take uh, some of the paper that will be provided and take notes Sunday night by Sunday night. And this can be a reference point for you, your own notes that you've taken through the whole Bible, and it will be a resource for you in the future. So we're excited to get that out to you hopefully next week. Um, okay, we're in chapters 7 and 8 tonight of the book of Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible close to you, either in the back of a chair, which is in front of you, or somebody has one you might want to just lean over and share with a friend. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight that once again... We live in a country that, for a time, we have the freedom to assemble. We have the freedom to worship. We thank you for all the variety of ways that there are to worship. With this exuberant praise that we had tonight, paying attention to your word and fellowship with one another, now, Lord, just enrich our lives. May this be a time where you just take our hearts and shape them, work at them, chisel them away. And help us, Lord, to understand these things. Help us, Lord, to love your word, to hunger and thirst after it, that we might be filled. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Seventy people originally went down to Egypt when Joseph's father Jacob and Joseph's brothers were sent when Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt after, of course, being sold as a slave and going through all the rigmarole of sort of making his way up the pecking order by the hand of God and by the miraculous um, intervention of God. Seventy people. Joseph was famous. He was a household name. At this point, there are over two and a half million people that have come from the original 70. They've really grown. As God said He would prosper them in the land of Goshen, which is in southern Egypt, God has done it. Two and a half million people, and Moses is to be the commander-in-chief of two and a half million redeemed, but sometimes complaining people. The conditions in Egypt have changed radically. Although Joseph was once a household name, at this point there arose a pharaoh who did not know who Joseph was. He didn't have a grip on even recent history. He didn't look back over the annals of his own history, of his own nation, to discover that there was a man who was a Hebrew named Joseph who became a prime minister and brought salvation to that part of the world with his strategy to overcome the famine. And in not knowing who Joseph is, he begins persecuting the Hebrew people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. After a while he dies, his son takes over. Moses has been out in the wilderness because he has fled. And now he comes back. And the Pharaoh's son, again a man who's hardened his heart against God, he also didn't know who Joseph was. He didn't care about who Moses was. In fact, he didn't even care about who God was. Well, God's going to show him a lesson. God's going to take him to the woodshed. In fact, Pharaoh arrogantly said last week, we read, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Well, he's going to show you. He's going to take you and show you through ten plagues exactly who he is. I tell you, we can forget history quickly. Even as Pharaoh forgot his own history. We can either forget it or rewrite it. As in this country, there are many revisionists of American history who neglect purposefully the foundation that this country was built upon. Though not all who were founding fathers were actually believers in Jesus Christ, they believed in God and so many of them believed in a personal relationship in Jesus Christ. Read the historical records. It's full of the gospel. I think of the great Ivy League schools like Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Read their founding cornerstones. They were developed to breed evangelists and pastors to proclaim the gospel throughout the eastern seaboard of the United States. Many of these universities you'd be hard-pressed to find a true believing professor. Rewriting the history or neglecting it altogether. Now, let's personalize that for just a moment. Every generation, folks, needs to be in touch with their spiritual history. For instance, you know Jesus Christ. And you have children, or one day you will have children, by God's grace. And it will be important that you train your children in the ways of the Lord, your spiritual history, lest they forget it or rewrite it. It was so important to these Jewish people. Remember in Deuteronomy, 
God says, you shall teach these precepts diligently to your children. When you sit down, you will talk with them. When you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you will teach these to your children lest they forget them. Have you noticed lately on television the new Coca-Cola advertisements, how slick they are? I mean, they're pretty awesome. But as far as commercials go, the new Coca-Cola commercials are, are pretty cool. I, I just look at those and think, boy, that's high tech. They spent a lot of money on them. Now, one would look at that and wonder, why would Coca-Cola need to spend billions of dollars that they spend annually on advertising? They're so big. Everybody knows about Coke worldwide. Listen, you can go to Hong Kong or Israel or almost anywhere and find Coca-Cola. You think they're so big they don't need to advertise. Well, have you heard of Arbuckle Coffee? Once the most popular brand in America. They thought it wasn't important to advertise. Now they're washed up their history. And Coca-Cola is a smart company. They think, no, we better advertise. Let people continually know in every generation what's happening. We need to advertise to our kids. We need to advertise to our society, to our world, who God is. And God has called upon Moses to do just that to this Pharaoh who didn't know. Now, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. Pharaoh is about to find that it is futile to fight against God. It is. It's absolutely ludicrous to think that you could fight against God and ever win a battle. Yet people try it all the time. Pharaoh tried it. Nebuchadnezzar tried it in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar one day, besides the many dreams he had, he saw in his dream a vision of a huge tree covering the whole earth. And it was such a spectacular tree, and all of a sudden a holy one, an angel, came from heaven and said, Chop it down! Leave it as a stump! And he said, Daniel, I don't know what this means. I know that you interpret dreams. What is it? And he said, Oh, king, live forever. The tree is you. And you're a great and a mighty king, and you're known over all the earth, but you're a prideful man, and God's going to cut you down. Well, he forgot about that dream. Twelve months later, he walks in his palace around Babylon. He looks over Babylon. He goes, look at this awesome city that I've built. And he started being puffed up. And as soon as he was saying that, and the words were still in his mouth, a voice came from heaven and said, you are toast. This is all paraphrased now. I'm not <laughs> quoting it directly. This is the new HEP translation, the NHP or NHT. Um, basically, you know, you're, you're wiped out. Your kingdom has ended. And it says that he actually went mad till seven seasons passed over him and he recognized that the Lord was God and he made a written confession throughout the whole empire. The Lord is God. I've tried to fight him. It's so futile. Some of you may have tried to fight the Lord. You're living a lifestyle of disobedience to God, one that is not pleasing to God, and you think, hey, well, I've gotten away with it so far. If God wanted to stop me, He certainly could, but He hasn't. Either He doesn't want to or He is incapable of doing it. But you're making a mistake. You're mistaking the long-suffering of God as if it's the approval of God. God just happens to be very, very patient, as he was with Pharaoh, giving him time after time, chance after chance to recant, but he didn't do it. Now we come to the showdown. 
Now remember, Moses is 80 years old as he's standing in this chapter in verse 1 before Pharaoh. 80 years old. Aaron is 83, and their ministry is just beginning. You've only just begun. And really, they had just begun in the ministry. Someone said, you can't turn the clock back, but you can certainly wind it up again. He didn't say, oh, I'm washed up for good. God said, you might think that, but I'm going to use you. So the Lord said to Moses, I made you as God to Pharaoh. Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet, and you shall speak all that I command you. And Aaron, your brother, shall speak to Pharaoh that he must send the children of Israel out of his land. Now, Pharaoh could not relate to an unseen God. Keep in mind his frame of reference. Pharaoh's gods were gods of stone, of flesh, things like cattle, the Nile River, frogs, and the like. Those were his gods. They were tangible. They were visible. Yahweh, the true God that appeared to Moses, was unseen, yet revealed. Now, Moses, God said, you're going to be as God unto Pharaoh. Even as God would commission a prophet as his mouthpiece, God is going to speak his word to Moses. Moses will speak the word of God to whom? Aaron. And Aaron will be like a prophet of Moses. Moses will declare God's word. Hey, Aaron, come here. This is what God told me today. And remember, I didn't want to speak myself. I said that I am a man of uncircumcised lips. So this is what you have to do. You have to speak to Pharaoh. Moses, instead of being the spokesman, let Aaron do his job. And so Aaron became as Moses' prophet. And so it was God's word to Moses, to Aaron, and eventually to Pharaoh. Now here's the catch. The impression that Pharaoh would receive of Moses' God and Aaron's God would come from them. They would be the ones that would make the impression. They're God's representatives. Now, we might not like this. It might seem a little bit uncomfortable to us, but we're in the same position. We're God's representatives. The impression that people will get of our God is the impression we give them. We're God's mouthpieces. We're witnesses of what God has done. We're not to add to it. We're not to make up our own little spiel. We're to represent God and to declare God's truth. In fact, it says in the book of 2 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Christ and we urge you to be reconciled to God. Hey, you're an ambassador. That's a pretty hefty position like the United Nations or a country would have an ambassador. You're an ambassador of heaven. You're God's royal rep. And you represent the living God to a dying world. The impression that they get of God is often the impression that we leave with them. Now, remember, Moses was to deliver the message. He wasn't to embellish it. He wasn't to add to it or edit it. You know, there were certain things that he had to say that weren't very popular. There were certain things that, in his message, Pharaoh wouldn't like to hear. But his responsibility was to proclaim it. I like that. I'm glad that God says, just proclaim my truth. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Don't edit it. Don't try to make it so that people think you're cool. Just be who you are and say what I've told you to say in my word. Proclaim the word. Makes it a whole lot easier. Sometimes I get people who 
Why did you say that the only way to God is through Jesus? You're so narrow-minded. I can say, don't get mad at me. I'm just repeating what I've heard. I didn't make it up. These aren't the rules. It's not my game here. Jesus said that. He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. You might think that's narrow-minded. You might think that's very narrow. It is very narrow. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and very few find it, Jesus said. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many enter in that way. So we're called to just proclaim the word of God. As John said, that which we have heard from him, declare we unto you. Verse 3. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. (coughs) But Pharaoh will not listen to you. He will not heed you. So that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Now keep in mind what we said last week. In Hebrew, there's two different words. Actually, there's three words for harden. Two different words are employed in the section that we're reading in the book of Exodus where Pharaoh hardens his heart. Later on, God hardens his heart. The idea is this. Pharaoh will set his course. God will strengthen or stiffen the resolve that Pharaoh makes. Now, God will allow us to choose. We have volition. We have the freedom of choice. How ludicrous it would be for God to say, you can choose any direction you want, but you can't have that one. You have to choose this one. Well, that's not choice. God will allow you to choose, and then God will strengthen or make stiff the choice that you already make. If you set your heart in a course, God will strengthen that. If you say, forget God, I'm not going to follow him, God will strengthen that resolve. You'll become hard-hearted. If you say, I resolve to follow God, though I know it's not going to be easy perhaps, I'm going to follow him. God will come along and strengthen that resolve that you make. Now we read a series of miracles that begin to answer the question that Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And I love this again. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. You know, getting older scares people. I remember when I believed that anybody over 30 was untrustable. That's old. When you're in your teens, you're trustable. When you're in your 20s, you're marginal. When you're in your 30s, you're over the hill. Now, I have a different perspective on that, being 38, (laughs) almost 39. Eighty years old. For the first 40 years, he thought he was something great. He was trained in Egypt. The next 40 years, God humbled him in the desert. Now he's 80, and the ministry just begins. Moses and Aaron were what we would call in this church silver saints. But I'll tell you something. If they reflect what it's like to grow old as a Christian, bring it on. Bring it on. To have the maturity, the experience of a person who's walked with the Lord and learned lessons, ooh, 
You don't have to worry about all those wrinkles. You don't have to worry about those love handles or the loss of hair as much as what's happening in your heart. Or I think of Caleb. And Caleb was, uh, was a guy that was very much like these two. Caleb and Joshua were the two spies that Moses sent out to look over the land of Canaan. And they came back and brought the good report, while ten other Israelites brought a bad report. And because of the bad report, the children of Israel disbelieved, caused wandering for many, many years, forty-some years. And then they eventually got into the land. When they got into the land, Caleb is still alive. And as they're making their way, conquering the land of Canaan, one day Caleb, on his birthday, he's 85 years old, steps forward. He says, Joshua, I'm 85 years old today. I was 40 years old when Moses sent you and me to spy out the land. And I brought back a good report, and so did you. But as you know, the children of Israel disbelieved. But... I knew that I would come to this day, and it was promised through Moses that we would be able to occupy the land that we walked on. He said, I'm 85 years old today, 45 years later, and I still have the strength that I had as a 40-year-old man. I have the same strength for fighting in war, for going out and coming in as I did then. And I want that mountain over there, that mountain that belongs to the Anakim, the giants. I'm going to take them out and have what God promised. And he did. He was an 85-year-old, rambunctious guy who wiped out the Anakim, the giants of the land, and settled in Hebron. Awesome. I'm as fit as a fiddle. I'm strong as I was as a 40-year-old man. Let me add him. Years ago, when we, uh, the fellowship was younger, a man who, I'm certain he's in heaven. In fact, I know he's in heaven. I heard about it. He was 95 back then. Came and spoke to the church. He spoke very slowly, but very definitely. His name was George Simmons. Some of you still may remember him. I was eating lunch with George Simmons one day, 95-year-old man, and as he was eating and talking, he didn't know it, but there was a loss of function of his lip, and he would drool. He wouldn't know it, and every now and then he'd have to wipe his, the, the drool off of his um, chin. He looked at me and he smiled and he said, you know, the plumbing's getting kind of bad. He said, I'm 95 years old, but my legs don't know it. And I'm still, I'm not going to retire. I'm going to just go for the gusto with the strength that God gives me. A great servant of the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when Pharaoh speaks to you saying, show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, take your rod. Cast it before Pharaoh, let it become a serpent. Now Pharaoh is going to ask for credentials. Moses and Aaron have some pretty hefty demands. Let two and a half million people leave. The obvious question is, wait a minute, who are you guys? Where's your papers? Where's your credentials? I'm not going to let them go that easy. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh. And they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh, before his servants, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers. So the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. Now the word here, snake or serpent, is often translated in Hebrew, crocodile or sea monster. And it's uncertain as to what exactly this was. Was it a crocodile? Was it a serpent? 
How was this performed? Was it by sleight of hand? Of course, we know from ancient literature that the magicians in the Near East were able to take serpents, and if you twist their head back into a certain position, it makes the serpent, the snake, rigid. They could do it with snakes and crocodiles. It would become very stick-like. When you release your grip, throw it on the ground, uh, it loses that stick-like rigidity and it slithers away. So we don't know if it was a crocodile, if it was uh, uh, a snake or whatever. But the idea wasn't that Moses and Aaron did it by sleight of hand, it was by God's power. Now, all of these things have meanings. God is going to judge the gods, we remember last week, of Egypt. And one of the gods of Egypt had the head like a crocodile. Its name was Seca, and it had a head like a crocodile, and it could be that it was some kind of a, a you know, crocodile, some kind of a, they were popular in Egypt, and this is what they used for uh, performing this feat. Now notice it says in verse 11, it speaks about that they also did, these magicians, they did in like manner with their enchantments. It would seem that these magicians were able to do the same thing, as we said, either by sleight of hand or probably by demonic deception. Now that shouldn't surprise you. If you're students of the Bible, it shouldn't surprise you at all. We remember that Satan took Jesus up to a high mountain and in one instant showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He had tremendous power, still does. Paul the Apostle said, don't marvel because Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. And he can deceive many in the tribulation period, the book of Revelation. Satan, along with the Antichrist, will perform miraculous feats and bring deception to the world. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents, but Aaron's, I love this, Aaron's rods swallowed up their rods. They lost their walking sticks. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not listen to them or heed them as the Lord had said. Now, as we saw last week by introduction of the ten plagues, successively these plagues get harder to deal with. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He's going to weaken a little bit, but harden it back up. Weaken a little more. Eventually, he'll be so pinned against the wall, and he'll recognize it is absolutely futile to fight against God. And he's going to give up, but for him it's going to be too late. Now, the purpose of the plagues is twofold. Number one, to show God's power over the gods of Egypt so that Israel will know our God is the Lord. Secondly, to judge the gods of Egypt. He is judging the false worship of these gods. Now the Egyptians worshipped things. They worshipped the Nile. They worshipped Heka, the frog goddess. They worshipped Apis, the bull. They, worshipped, they had 3,000 different gods. They worshipped created things. Remember Paul spoke about this in the book of Romans. Professing themselves to be wise, what? They became as fools. And they exchanged the glory of incorruptible God into an image of beasts, four-footed things, birds of the air. And they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Here they are worshipping creatures rather than the creator. And God is about to bring judgment upon them. I found something interesting as I was studying polytheism or the worship of many gods. Polytheism, some of the scholars tell us, in almost every case, has its original roots in monotheism, the belief of a culture in one God. 
But what happened was this. The cultures that believed in one overall supreme being started thinking that this God was too great to involve himself in the affairs of man, and so he sort of subbed it out to under-gods, supervisors. And that culture couldn't handle the idea that God so great could be so intimate. And so they started developing the God of this and the God of that, the God of the hills and the God of the valleys, of the rivers, of the skies. That's what grieved Paul the Apostle. He came into Athens. And as he was in Athens waiting for his friends, it says his spirit was provoked because he saw that the city was completely given over to idolatry. There was gods on every corner. There was even an altar, he noticed, with an inscription to the unknown God, just in case they left a God out, they didn't know his name, they didn't want to offend anybody, the unknown God. He thought, key to the culture. So he preaches to them at the Areopagus there in Athens. And he said, men of Athens, I've looked around and I've noticed the objects of your worship. I've noticed that you're very religious. I've even found an altar to the unknown God. And that's the God I want to proclaim unto you. The one you don't know. The one who knows you. The one true God who you ought to know and you can know through Jesus Christ. Now Moses is about to introduce the unknown God to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They worship so many false ones, he's going to introduce the right one. The miracles that you will see performed in these chapters would convince anyone, you would think, right? You'd think that Pharaoh, they'd say, okay, hey, uncle, I'm tired of frogs. I'm tired of lice. I don't want these things around. I want the judgment to abate. But all of the miracles did not convince Pharaoh. They seem to, but then he draws back again. People make a mistake thinking that if somebody could see a miraculous sign that they would be convinced. Not always the case. I think that miracles simply enhance and confirm faith, never produce it. We remember in the New Testament that Jesus gave a story in the Gospel of Luke about a rich man who fared sumptuously every day. And he gave scraps to another man named Lazarus. Both of them died. The rich man was in Hades being tormented in heat. And Lazarus was being comforted in Abraham's bosom. The rich man cried out in hell, Jesus said. Father Abraham, send somebody back. Send Lazarus back. Send a representative who can speak to my family on earth. Abraham said, no. They've got Moses and the prophets. The Word of God, let him hear that. Oh no, but if somebody rises from the dead, I know that they'll believe. They see some miraculous extravaganza. Abraham said, no, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. Judas saw lots of miracles, didn't he? Didn't seem to sway him much. Pharisees, they saw lots of miracles. They only hardened their hearts. One of the most tragic things we read in the scripture is during the last period of judgment upon the earth, the tribulation period, as seen in the book of Revelation, as plagues like Egypt are poured out upon the entire earth, it said they hardened their hearts, neither did they turn or repent. Verse 14, so the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. 
Go to Pharaoh in the morning, and when he goes out to the water, you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him, and the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness, but indeed until now you would not hear. Again, every time I read this, I can't help but I can't get Charlton Heston's picture out of my mind. I just, I grew up with it. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink. You can imagine. And the Egyptians will loathe or hate to drink the water of the river. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch it out. Stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. Skipped a couple verses. Um, back to those verses in uh, verse 19. The Lord spoke to Moses, Take your rod and stretch it forth. There shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt and the vessels of wood and vessels of stone. The gods of the Egyptians were depicted in vessels of stone. Sometimes on the very vessels themselves there would be an inscription or there would be some kind of an image of a god. And uh, they used it for the purpose often of worship. And uh, what God is doing is bringing judgment again upon the gods of Egypt and uh, judging them and in the very objects of their worship. Now look at verse um, 20. And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded, so he lifted up the rod, struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that were in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. One wonders about this. I mean, it was already bad enough. The fish were dead. There was blood everywhere. It stunk. It's like, well, let's add to it. Of course, there's a battle going on between these deities. But all they did is make it worse. They had the power to add to it, but not to take it away, as Moses did. They did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Now we get into chapter 8, the second plague of the frogs. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all of your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedchamber, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens. 
frog legs. Into your kneading bowls, frog souffle and frog bread. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, and on all your servants. They kind of had Kermit overkill in this plague. And the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. One of the most beautiful temples over in Memphis, Egypt. It was a gorgeous temple to the most ugly goddess, Heka, the frog goddess. She was sort of the patron god of midwives. She was supposed to assist women when they had children. They actually worshipped frogs. They worshipped Heka. And whenever they would see a frog, it was an offense to kill a frog. You couldn't have frog legs. It was a capital offense. You had to worship that little image. Oh, stay out of the way. There's a little representation of the goddess. Goddess saying, oh, you like frogs? I'll give you so many frogs, you'll hate them. Imagine going to bed at night. There's a frog under your pillow. There's a frog hopping by your feet as you put the covers over you. You go to check the bread, Ribbit. there's a frog in the oven, frog in the kneading bowl. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Enough already, goodness. And Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Oh, it sounds like he's breaking, doesn't it? Sounds like, okay, God got his attention. He put his arm behind his back, and now he says, Uncle. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When shall I intercede for you, for your servants, for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only? So Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. That's a puzzlement, isn't it? Okay, you want the frogs gone? When do you want them gone? They're everywhere. They're on your people. You can't get rid of them. When do you want them to go? I'd say, now. Right now. Hocus pocus. Do it now. He said, tomorrow. Oh, how many people are like that? When confronted with the gospel. When confronted with the message of the love of God. And if you don't receive that, the judgment of God. When confronted with the claims of Christ and they know it's true. And you say, accept the Lord now. Receive him tonight as your Savior. No, I'll wait till tomorrow. You know, for a lot of people, tomorrow doesn't come. Or it stretches out into next week. Or I'm too busy now. Wait till my children are grown. Or wait till I'm out of college. Or whatever flaky excuse. When shall I do it? Tomorrow. Let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, from your people, and shall remain in the river only. Verse 12. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs, which he had brought against the Pharaoh. And so the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, out of the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. 
I can imagine how bad it stank. But at the same time, it, part of me laughs at this. It's kind of like, okay, you're worshiping false gods, boy. Their god stinks at this point. That's what they're thinking. Piles of frogs stinking up the land. When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart. Now here's a voluntary hardening of the heart. God isn't doing this. He's doing it. He's made a resolve. God will strengthen the resolve, but he's hardened his heart. And he did not heed them as the Lord said. Now in verse 16, we get to the third plague, the plague of lice. In case you think, oh, that couldn't be that bad. Maybe you know better. A couple months ago, I was in Sudan. And I was in a little village by the Sobat River. And this whole area is infected with what they call relapse fever. And relapse fever is an infectious disease that brings on a fever that's caused by the spirochetes uh, that come from the transmission uh, from lice, as the lice from the cattle would come on humans and bite them, stay on their clothes and bite them, they get relapse fever. And uh, thousands of them this year have died. And Samaritan's Purse has sent medical teams over to treat relapse fever caused by the lice. And uh, the first of the year we're going to send Jesse Ponce over there to teach the pastors uh, for about six weeks uh, more of the Bible. They've got, you know, just a few Bibles among thousands of believers, so we want to send you know, at least a thousand Bibles over to this region of Sudan and strengthen the believers uh, who are inviting us to come because of the relapse fever caused by these lice. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod, strike the dust of the land, so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod, struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice upon man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. Now their power is seeing is limited. So there was lice on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard. He did not listen to them just as the Lord had said. The Egyptians worshipped Geb, G-E-B. Geb was the god of the earth. Geb was a prominent god. Geb was the god who would have to bring reports regularly to the god Osiris concerning the state of the harvest in Egypt. Now God is cursing the god Geb as the dust of the earth itself becomes lice. I found out the writings of a journal of a man who went to Egypt and he discussed the meaning of this verse. He had experience with lice in Egypt. This is what he said. I noticed as I was there that the sand appeared to be in motion. Close inspection revealed that the surface of the ground was a moving mass of minute ticks, thousands of which were crawling up my legs. I beat a hasty retreat, pondering the words of the scriptures, the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. So you get sort of the feel of what it was like for this judgment to fall upon the Egyptians. Now the magicians couldn't duplicate this or any of the rest of the miracles. Notice it says that in verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Sort of an interesting phrase. 
That is a colorful figure of speech. You'll see lots of figures of speech in the Bible. We call them anthropomorphisms. An anthropomorphism is putting God in human language. An attribute of God, the only way a human can understand transcendent God is for transcendent God to be described in non-transcendent language, in language of humans. And so you have scriptures like, under the wings of the Almighty. It doesn't mean God is a chicken with wings. It is a figure of speech, an anthropomorphism, depicting transcendent God in human language so that we can go, oh, I see God is caring for his people. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth. The hand of God or the finger of God. And that is an anthropomorphism. And you'll find it many times in the scripture. A woman is caught in adultery in the New Testament. And uh, actually it was the finger of God. Jesus started writing on the ground which brought conviction to the people. The Pharisees. When Belshazzar, who succeeded Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, was having that big old party having all his friends over, and he was drunk as a skunk, he saw the finger of God writing on the wall. Many, many tekel you farce, and you've been weighed in the balances, pal, and found wanting. It was the finger of God that wrote. Jesus used this phrase. He said, if I cast out demons with the finger of God, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. They were experiencing the finger of God moving in these plagues. Now in verse 20, we get the fourth plague, flies. <laughs> The Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, stand before the Pharaoh. As he comes out to the water, say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me, or else. If you do not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, on your people. All your houses, the houses of the Egyptians, shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. And in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell that no swarms of flies will be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. Up to this point, it seems that Egypt and Goshen, which connected where the children of Israel were living, two and a half million of them living in that land of Goshen, that fertile Nile crescent, Nile Delta, that the plague affected all of the Nile region. All of the Nile turned to blood. There was lice everywhere. It was a plague to everyone. Now there is a distinction being made. Now only in Egypt and not in Goshen, in which my people dwell, the north swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference, verse 23, between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. Now in verse 24, and the Lord did so, thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh into his servants' houses, into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. No fly swatter on earth would handle this. No strips of fly paper would handle this. No little electronic bug devices would work. Swarms. Most scholars believe that the idea of the swarms of flies is actually swarms of the scarab beetle. Kepra was the beetle god. And it's depicted still in Egypt. If you go to Egypt, in fact, when I was there, I was handed as a little souvenir a little 
a stone scarabila. I didn't know what it was, but it's still a very popular trinket. And Kepra was the, one of the gods that they worship, and um, he's being judged at this point. Something very sacred to the Egyptians now becomes a curse. It was a symbol of eternal life. Notice verse 23, however. God says, I will make a difference between my people and your people. God knows how, in judgment, to distinguish between the people that belong to him and the people who do not belong to him. This is a very important principle. You will find it throughout the entire Bible. That when God judges, when he is the one that brings judgment, he makes a distinction. I'd like you to turn just for a moment to 2 Peter chapter 4 in the New Testament. The principle is laid out, excuse me, did I say chapter 4? Chapter 2, 2 Peter. The principle is laid out uh, very um, uh, open-facedly. 2 Peter chapter 2. Verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved in judgment, or for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah one of the eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making of them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. A principle you find in Scripture is that God makes a distinction whenever the judgment comes from Him. Why do I bring that up? For this reason, simply. For God to deliver the church before He brings tribulation on the world is in perfect keeping with this principle found throughout the Scripture. God knows how to make a difference. The key is in the nature of the tribulation itself. And I hear people quote this all the time. They say, well, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, which means we're going to go through the tribulation. It's not what he meant. There's a difference between tribulation that comes from the world as its source and tribulation that is sent by God as a judgment. Two different sources. And God can make a, a difference, and he does. He makes a distinction. In fact... Jesus, speaking about the great tribulation, told his followers, and when you see all these things, pray that you might escape them and stand before the Son of Man. You know what? I'm praying that. Lord, I want to stand in you. I want to follow Jesus Christ that I might escape these things that are coming upon the world. The tribulation period, when God judges the earth for seven years, is in part to judge the world and in part to prepare Israel for future restoration, not to prepare the church for glory. 
through the fire of tribulation. You've got to understand the nature of the tribulation itself so God makes a difference. Verse 25, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron, and he said, Go. Ooh, it sounds good, right? Go, sacrifice to your God in the land. So far it sounds great. But what's the catch? In the land. Pharaoh is starting to make compromises here now. He's saying, okay, you want to worship God? Fine. I've had enough of your stupid plagues. I don't want to get plagued anymore. Go, worship your God, but stay in the land. From chapters 8 through 10, we'll cover a little bit tonight, chapter 8, 9 and 10 next week. We get insights into the tactics of Satan, our enemy. You know, the Bible says we're not ignorant of his devices, right? Yet some Christians, it seems, are ignorant of his devices. And one of his cleverest devices is negotiation. Compromise. Causing you to compromise your walk. Causing you to compromise your values for the Lord. And I'll tell you what, in this present world, it's getting tougher and tougher to stand up for Jesus Christ. The persecution is coming, folks. Soon you will not be tolerated, even as Pharaoh didn't tolerate the people of God. Satan is not an idiot. He's been around a long time. He's had a lot of practice. He knows how to tempt people. He knows what things to use and what to say, and he's persistent. And one of his philosophies is this. If you can't beat them, join them. And he has worked in past history by causing an attack overtly against his people. When that overt attack doesn't work, he works covertly, undercover. He joins the ranks. So first, kill the male Hebrew children. That's what Pharaoh did. Well, they just multiplied more. Now comes compromise. Go do what God wants you to do, but stay in the land. Now that same voice comes to Christians today. A voice goes like this. Fine, you want to worship God? Great. You want to be a Christian? Great. But don't be so radical. Stay in the world. You don't have to change your whole lifestyle. Just go to church. Buy a Bible if that makes you feel good. Stay in the land, man. Stay in the world. Don't change your lifestyle. Have you ever read the Screwtape Letters? C.S. Lewis? Sometimes it's required reading in high school or college courses. C.S. Lewis wrote, as being a demon, that would be hard to do as a Christian author. He said it almost wiped him out in his preface, but it was Uncle Screwtape, the senior demon, writing to his nephew, I think Slubglob was his name, on how to tempt people. And he uh, uh, writes as if each of the demons is assigned a person on earth to keep them away from the gospel. And he writes one letter and he says, uh, my dear nephew, I understand that your patient has become a Christian. We're not going to take this lightly down here in hell. You'll be punished with the normal punishment. But it's okay. What you've got to do is keep this man interested in religion. Religion is a good thing. It will work for us. Keep him interested in religious activity, but not in the heart of the gospel. Let him say he believes things, but keep him from behaving according to what he says he believes. It's the voice of compromise. Now, this was probably a temptation for Moses. 
Hey, it's safe in the land. There's food in the land. You get up and leave. Two and a half million by faith, leaving the land of Egypt out in the desert to worship God and sacrifice. It's hard. I'm safe here. There's a lot of people who are like that. Oh, it's safe. I don't want to move. I don't want to venture for what God would want me to do because it's just safe and comfortable right here. If I change, what will happen? In fact, this is one of the reasons many people, the older they get, the less chances they have of coming to Christ. The older you get, it's true, isn't it? You get settled in your ways. You think down a certain path and you become more rigid in your thinking, more closed-minded. When a person is very young, they are open-minded. That can be good, that can be bad. Go to a university and you'll see that everybody's, they're oftentimes brains are like funnels. Just pour anything in and believe anything. Open-minded. Oh, be open-minded, don't be narrow. Yet, many people do not come to Christ in later years because they become hardened and set in their ways. In fact, the Billy Graham Association released these statistics that if you're 25 years of age, now these are simply statistics, we know God breaks all the odds, but the odds of a person 25 years old coming to Christ is 1 in 5,000. The odds of a person 35 years of age coming to Christ is 1 in 25,000. The odds of a 45-year-old coming to Christ is 1 in 60,000. The odds of a 55-year-old coming to Christ, one in 125,000. The odds of someone between 65 and 75, they simply say is miraculous. Hey, I'm religious. Don't, don't tell me that I need to change my life. That's what oftentimes people's excuses are. Most conversions happen in teenage years. Most changes, most people coming to Christ, come in teenage years. Now, that's just, that's just the truth. We should preach the gospel to all people. And yet, just knowing that causes me to want to reinforce efforts to reach the young, to get into the high schools, to get onto campuses, to use the means that God has put at our disposal to reach the youth, because that's the future. Moses said, it is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will not they stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as He will command us. Now, blood sacrifice was considered an abomination to the Egyptians. They wouldn't tolerate it. Yet, what was an abomination to the Egyptians is exactly what God commanded them to do. The Egyptians couldn't stand for blood sacrifice. And Moses said, hey, we do it in the land. They're going to stone us. We start cutting up those animals. And yet that's the very thing God commanded them to do, is to sacrifice to the Lord in the wilderness. Now, is it any different today? Let's look at the analogy in modern times. Christians and non-Christians can live in the same town, go to the same restaurants, go to the same banks, and it's okay. But the minute the Christian talks about the blood of Jesus Christ as being necessary to bring salvation, who you'll have a rift. You've just created an abomination in the minds of the world. In fact, I've heard people criticize Christianity as this bloody religion, narrow-minded bigotry that speaks about the blood of Jesus Christ. And to many people, it's an abomination. The world finds it offensive. You found that out if you've witnessed. 
you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've shared your faith, people find that oftentimes repulsive. And yet that's exactly how we're saved and cleansed. And so Paul, the, the apostle, said, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews. It is a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it is foolishness. Paul said, The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit. Hey, if we stay in the land, they're going to kill us. They don't understand spiritual things. We need to go out in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, verse 28, I'll let you go. That you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you shall not go very far away. Now he seems like, hey, this is great. He's breaking. He's lengthening the chain, but the chain is still there, even if it's a little longer. Go, but don't go very far. And then he says, pray for me. Intercede for me. This guy is not anxious to let two and a half million of the workforce take a leave of absence. He's building cities. He has temples to build. You can go, but don't go very far. Now, isn't that one of the most favorite things that the world says to the Christian? Hey, don't go too far, man. Don't go overboard. You want to be a Christian? You want to get baptized? You want to buy a Bible? Great. But I've known people who've gone crazy going overboard. You can be a fanatic. You can get a little nuts. Don't go very far. Stay close by. I remember when I became a Christian, I heard that. They thought, Skip, you know, we, we, we always thought you were a little bit kooky. And now you come and you got this weird smile and you're telling us about Jesus. And then you, you, you bought a Bible and you carry it around with you. And you go to church all the, almost every night of the week. You're at church. You're nuts. You've gone too far. When I was a young, younger Christian, I lived in Orange County. I shared the gospel with a girl named Linda. She said, you're nuts. You've gone too far. Eventually, make it short, she accepted the Lord. She went too far. <laughs> she made Jesus Christ her Savior. Her friends... <coughs> Tried to talk her out of it. Then they came to me. Tried to talk me into talking her out of it. They said, man, she was so fun before. She was a partier. You've ruined her. You've separated friendships. You've gone too far. She's gone too far. I bought her a Bible so that she would go further and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and consumed the scripture. And she started reading it every night. I picked her up for church one night. <laughs> her father answered the door. Young man, can I have a word with you? Absolutely, sir. And then her mother came down. She was even harder than he was. And she pointed her finger at me and said, You have ruined my family. I said, What do you mean? She said, You bought my daughter a Bible. You've taken her to this church, and she's there all the time. She's telling us that we need to change. You're splitting our family. I said, I'm sorry if you feel that way, but you can't lay the accusation at me. For Jesus himself said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. And from this day forward, will a, a girl, a daughter, be divided against her father and mother? And a man's enemies will be those of his old household. 
That didn't take well with them. <laughs> they accused me of being a brainwasher. They accused me of being narrow-minded. I admitted that I was. I said, no, my mind is closed. I found the truth. He said, are you brainwashed? I said, I'm brainwashed. Jesus washed my brain. <laughs> now, can you go overboard as a Christian? Can you go too far into this God thing? Can you go too far with Jesus? Well, you can never go overboard as a true believer. Now, you can have zeal without knowledge. You can say stupid things and bring disgrace to the gospel. I see people who, in their witness, act very obnoxious. They haven't gone too far. The idea is that they have a zeal without knowledge that Paul spoke about in Romans. Or you can act self-righteously. Or you can act in hypocrisy. That's going the wrong way. But it's interesting. People say, oh, you're fanatics. They would listen to our worship tonight and go, reading the Bible, this music, and oh, they've gone, these guys are nuts. Especially when they hear people clapping and getting excited. Yet, go to a Lobo basketball game. Watch the people in the crowds when somebody on our team makes a basket. We call them fans. It's simply short for fanatic. They're fans. They're fanatics. They love the Lobos. They jump up and down. The cheerleaders jump up and down. They're so excited. Yet, get us in a stadium, and we get all excited at the Harvest Crusade or at an Easter sunrise service about the gospel, and they walk away shaking their heads. Fanatics. Nuts. We're excited about the living God who lives, who changes lives. Don't go too far. It seems, folks, that today Christians have become the enemy in this society. If tonight you are born again, an effective witness, a Christian who believes in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, in this society, I want to warn you, you are becoming the enemy. You are becoming the problem in the eyes of our society in America. Let me share with you two quotes out of the New York Times. Robert Mullaney of the New York Times said, The religious right confronts us with a threat far greater than the old threat of communism. You're worse than a communist. Did you know that? Eric Schneiderman of the New York Times said, The Christian coalition is one of the most dangerous forces on the American scene today. And Peter Larman said, The repressive designs of these militant religionists, Protestant Bible thumpers, and their newfound Roman Catholic allies. Verse 29, Moses said, I am indeed going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord that swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, <coughs> excuse me, and from the people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. Now, your homework for next week is the next two chapters, and you will find that a man, even with a hardened heart, will find it's futile to fight against God. 
Eventually, God can back a person in a corner and make his life so miserable. You think, is that a God of love? Oh, oh yes. God knows what's best for you. God knew that for Jonah, the best thing Jonah could do is to obey God. Jonah wouldn't do it. I want to do my own thing, go my own way. So he went the opposite direction. Well, God made his life uncomfortable, to say the least, as he was now down in the mouth of a large whale. And he cried out to God, and the whale vomited him up on the land. And now being covered with stomach acid and seaweed, he said, all right, you win. I'll do your will. I love the persistence of God. Father knows best, and he pursues us to convince us of that. If you're a Christian, you can harden your heart. Paul warned the New Testament believers, and don't be like the children of Israel who hardened their heart in the wilderness. Instead of seeing the mighty hand of God, being swayed by it, they hardened their hearts. They became complainers. Or like Pharaoh, who hardened his heart. If tonight you don't know Jesus Christ, you might be very much like Pharaoh. You might be the kind who would say, okay, listen, it's okay to be baptized, carry a Bible, but you shouldn't go very far. You should stay in the world. You shouldn't really have to change your lifestyle. Well, let me just put it this way, in that same vernacular. God wants you to go too far with Him. God wants you to absolutely surrender your life, abdicate the throne, give Him the pink slip, so to speak, and let Him drive your life. He wants you to hop in the back seat. You've been driving all over the road, going in the wrong direction. God says, scoot over. Let me take the wheel. Give me your life. If you haven't done that tonight, it's time. You can soften your heart, and then God will strengthen that resolve, or you can harden your heart, and God will strengthen that resolve. If you haven't made that choice, may you make the right one. Father, we thank you. Your word is true. That you are the living God, that these principles are ever fresh and applicable to the lives of men and women of any generation. And we who trust in you know that. Tonight, Father, we pray that we could take these lessons that we've learned, that we've taken notes on mentally or on paper, and let them become part of our lifestyle. That we would be representatives, representing you before this world, even before people who are stubborn and alienated from you. Fill us with your spirit. Enable us to be good, clear, lucid representatives. And then, Father, we pray also that the people that we share with would respond. And tonight, if there are people who haven't surrendered their lives to Christ tonight. They've hardened their hearts. They may be religious, but Lord, whatever it is, I just pray that if there hasn't been a total abdication of their life to Christ, that tonight that would come. And if you've come tonight, it doesn't matter if you have a religious background, perhaps as a Roman Catholic or a Protestant. You've gone to church. You've heard words all of your life, but you've never come to a point in your life where you've said, okay, God, take over. I surrender. The Bible calls that being born again. A new start. Eternal life can be yours tonight 
if you receive it, if you ask for it. If you want to know that your sins are forgiven, you want to know that you have a new start, I invite you to make a decision tonight for Jesus Christ. And just watch what God does with your life. Take Him at His word. Take Him tonight as Savior. If that's your desire, if you've come tonight, you don't know Him, but you'd like to make a decision to follow Him, or if you've strayed from the path, if you've backslidden, but you want to come home to Him, I'd like you to just raise your hand wherever you're sitting. 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 Just raise your hand wherever you're sitting.